Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. And I have with me today Ben Shapiro. Uh, Most of you will be immediately uh, familiar with uh, Ben Shapiro. He's the editor-in-chief of The Daily Wire. He's the host of The Ben Shapiro Show, which is one of the most listened-to podcasts in the world. Uh, And he's written a bunch of uh, books, including his most recent book, The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great, which I want to talk about uh, in just a minute. But Ben, before we do, when I sit here and look at all of the stuff that you write and the fact that you're on the road constantly speaking, debating, on college campuses and everything else, how do you do that? <laughs> I mean, in terms of just <laughs> having time to think and, uh, and prepare and plan, how do you sort of manage your life? Well, you know, thank God. I I feel like there are periods in my life where we're expanding the amount of work and then there are periods where we're contracting the amount of work. Right now, I provide about 16 hours of live content a week. So Mm. we do a three-hour radio show, including a one-hour podcast every day, and then I do an additional hour that's an interview with somebody. And I used to write a lot more on a daily basis. Now I write maybe a couple of times a week. And then obviously I write my books and and do the speeches. The big thing for me is that I have to have sort of a set work schedule. I'm better in a routine. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I have really tried to minimize travel because I have a couple of kids, five and three. Yeah. Uh, my wife just finished residency, so that makes things a little bit easier. So she's she's around a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, you get done what you can get done. Thank God, I'm, I'm a very fast writer because I've been doing this for a while. Compressing information and then providing it comes somewhat naturally at this yeah. point. And, and most of all, I enjoy what I'm doing and I think it's important. So that that definitely allows me to feel enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Now, you are a really controversial person in in a lot of ways because you'll be uh, debating uh, somebody on a college campus. Sometimes there will be protests that will uh, erupt uh, when you come onto a college campus. And I'm wondering, there are a couple kinds of people that I know. There are some people who are in that arena, but they don't really like it. I mean, they're, they're able to do it, but they don't. And then there are some people who actually kind of like that. It kind of invigorates them. Uh, what, what sort of person would you be? What category would you fit in, would you think? So honestly, I, it's kind of both. So when I think about doing it, I don't like it. And then when I'm in it, I kind of like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it, like the, the idea of the stress of conflict. I'm not in love with it. And when I'm trending on Twitter, it's a bad day. It, it annoys me. I, I feel like doing my job and going home like everybody else. At the same time, once you're actually in a conversation with somebody who disagrees or in a debate with somebody who is, who is speaking up on behalf of principles you think are wrong, then you can either embrace it or you can feel uncomfortable about it. I tend to embrace the conflict that's in front of me. And so while I'm not conflict-seeking, like I prefer a day where I don't have that conflict, mm-hmm. once I'm in it, then I'm, I'm perfectly fine with engaging. So, Well, your book, uh, The Right Side of History, I, I was really fascinated from the very beginning because uh, you, you talked about the, the mystery of why things are so bad along with the mystery of why things are so good. Which, uh, for me, as a Christian uh, theologian, sounded really Augustinian. You might not <laughs> like that uh, comparison, but but it, 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 sounded, sounded, me. it sounded that right. way to me. What do you mean by that? In, in terms, what of- I mean is that we are the, you know the richest, freest people in the history of the world, the least discriminated against people in the history of the world. You can pick your subgroup, and in history, it would be ignorant to suggest that you are now more discriminated against than anybody of your group in the West was even forty or fifty years ago. Um, maybe 20 years ago. And yet we are really enraged at one another. You can feel it in our mm-hmm. politics. You feel as though we are coming apart at the seams, as though we don't have any values in common. Uh, you're seeing rising rates of suicide, particularly among younger people. You're seeing the opioid epidemic. There are feelings of division that that are exploited by politicians who are seeking to 
cast you as the victim and other people around you as victimizers. And so the question is, if I told you 100 years ago, here's the deal, you're going to have a magic machine that you carry around and it gives you access to all information on planet Earth at the touch of a button. You can also FaceTime. You can, you can actually have FaceTime with anyone in your family, no matter where they live, at any time of the day. You can walk into a, a market, and you can buy any type of food sourced from anywhere on the planet, and you can do so for pretty much nothing. And you can order any product on a magic machine, and it will arrive to you in two days or less. <laughs> and you're going to live till you're 80, right? You're going you're gonna to be born, and you're going to live till at least you're 80. That's going to be the average life expectancy people would have thought that you are talking about utopia. Mm -hmm. And yet we are treating this as though it is a dystopian society. On the right, you have people who are declaring that we are in the death throes of civilization. And on the left, you have people who are declaring that capitalism has failed us, that the economy has failed us, that we're tearing each other apart because of economic shortcomings and in income inequality. So I was trying to get at what exactly were the unifying features of American society or what were those features supposed to be anyway? And why does it feel like those are dissolving? And that's not to whitewash the history of the West or the history of the United States and say that we haven't had divisive periods in American history. We certainly have. The difference was that in those divisive periods, there were some real things to fight about. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when in the 1960s, the civil rights fight was a fight worth having, and there were mm -hmm. real disagreements about real issues. The Civil War was a, a real disagreement about a serious moral issue. You know, whether or not the marginal tax rate is 37% or 32%, yeah. and whether or not we are going to place carbon taxes on emissions. Like these are policy differences, but why exactly are we clubbing each other over the head on a routine basis about this kind of mm. stuff? And why do you think that is? Why, why is everything so, uh, to go back to Augustine, so Manichaean? Uh, well, I now. mean, I think that economically, we've obviously become incredibly successful because of free markets and capitalism. And at the same time, we seem to have left behind the idea of community outside of government. So government has supplanted the idea of community, and that's particularly church community. So mm -hmm. if you look back to the founding, one of the critiques that's being made at the founding on the left is that the founding was selfish and capitalistic and, and sort of atomistic. Mm -hmm. And then on the right, you see a similar criticism, which is that classical liberalism, this is sort of the Patrick Deneen criticism, yeah. that classical liberalism is carries the seeds of its own destruction because it doesn't reinforce the social institutions that are necessary in order to build a successful society. But that's not what the founders were talking about. What the founders really believed is that the enlightenment and enlightenment values and freedom, that had a flip side and, and those freedoms were, were balanced by virtues and duties. I mean, mm -hmm. as John Adams put it best when he said that the constitution was designed for a moral and religious people only. Anything else would, would fall apart. That uh, if you have a, a non-moral people, they will shred the bounds of the constitution like a whale through a net. It's not, it's not gonna do anything. George Washington talked about all of this. And so there's been this bizarre recasting of the Enlightenment and the American founding as this unique moment in time, Jonah Goldberg calls it the miracle, where sort of out of nowhere, these thoughts appeared. And the point that I'm making in the book is that this was the outgrowth of a long history in Western civilization that is connected to deep religious roots and mm -hmm. deep roots in reason. And you do need both. That basically civilization is built on a suspension bridge between basic philosophical tenets that are embedded in Judeo-Christian values and also in the use of human reason to militate and, and to help us sort of separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to public policy and religion. And if you don't have either one of those, if you, if you don't have the freedom of reason, you end up with theocracy. And if you don't have religious institutions and religious principles, you can either end up in tyranny or in complete anarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the balancing act that the Enlightenment provides, the best part of the Enlightenment, the American Enlightenment provides, is the model that we need to return to. In other words, we need to stop ripping on people going to church. We have to stop pretending that intermediate associations like, like church are a bad thing. And at the same time, we have to recognize that classical liberalism is quite a good thing and that rule from above and an attempt to cram down your values on other people on a broad level is, is going to create more conflict than it prevents.
You know, you mentioned church communities, and one of the things that I've noticed, I bring this up all the time with people, is the fact that one almost sees the reverse of what one would have expected to see in the 20th century, which is rural communities used to be sort of the church-going, stable sort of societies. People worried about sending their kids off to the big city uh, for fear that they would lose their faith. Now, uh, what I'm looking at is tremendous stress uh, coming on church communities in those uh, rural areas. They, that, that in many cases, the, the very same social dis, dissolution that's happening everywhere else is happening within the church too. And so wh- what would you advise people to do? What can the regular church-going person who's concerned about that fraying uh, of community, what can he or she do? I mean, I think that the first thing, if you're church going already, I think that that's obviously the first step. I mean, I think a lot of the book is basically a call for people to respect religious foundations of the society. I also think that one of the big factors in the decline of church has been the decline of the role of church in actually providing not just philosophical and religious social fabric, but also the sort of help on a day-to-day level that, that people need. And so people have started to rely on government as a substitute for church. For most of American history, local and state and federal government did not nearly as much for individuals as churches and religious communities did. The sort of route that you went when you had trouble was you immediately went to your family, and then you went to your church. Mm-hmm. And then after that, maybe you went to local authorities, state authorities, federal authorities. And now it seems as though this has almost been reversed. Because the government has guaranteed these privileges as entitlements, you're, you're now seeing church relegated to secondary status in helping people. And so people think, okay, well, am I really, like, why go to church on Sunday just for the boring sitting in the pews for a couple of hours when... I'm going to get all the things I need from the government and I don't have to go to church. Well, of course, the church comes along with a lot more than the the boring sitting in the pews or in the or in the material that's provided by the church. But that's all part of building a social fabric, a feeling of trust and a feeling of reliance. And as churches leave a lot of these areas, when areas are impoverished, when people move out of rural areas and they take their money with them and they take their potential with them and the churches dissolve, mm-hmm. then it makes things worse. And, and a lot of this also has to do with broad social trends that Charles Murray talks about in Coming Apart, the trend toward high rates of single motherhood in rural communities, uh, the association between poverty and, and these effects. Now, the church was supposed to fill that gap. I also think that church leaders, and this is true particularly in the Jewish community, I think that what you're seeing is that the church tried to pander to people it thought was going to leave. It, it just stopped giving them the kind of harsh but true, fact check harsh but true information that they need about Mm -hmm. how to live a virtuous life, and instead started substituting a feeling of vague spirituality for actual moral standards. And that has not been a boon to the church. It's been precisely the opposite. If I want vague moral standards and some pizza, I can get that on PBS. If I want actual injunctions about life and eternal life and the things that you should be doing, then I'll go to synagogue or I'll go to church. And that's what you're seeing, by the way, in terms of the statistics. The the great move away from religion in the United States is largely not coming away from the people who are regular churchgoers. It's mm. from the people who are once a month or once a year churchgoers yeah. and from people who go to synagogue, you know, once every year on Yom Kippur and then break for and then break for lunch. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I think that religion has to take itself seriously if it hopes to be taken seriously by others. Mm. I agree with that completely. When, when I think of the title of your book, The Right Side of History, uh, where most evangelical Christians, when, what they think of immediately, I think, when they think of those words, would be arguments over the LGBT uh, issue. And, yep. and uh, there, there are a lot of people who will say, look, those of you who are 
conservative evangelicals, whether Christian, sexual ethic, or Orthodox Jews or, or Muslims, uh, you're on the wrong side of history, and we're going to use culture and government to sort of nudge you along to where you're going to go anyway, uh, ultimately, because history is sweeping us uh, toward this place. How would you advise Christians to engage that issue when you have some who are really combative on the issue, but you have a, a lot more, I think, especially younger evangelicals who are still they still hold to Christian convictions, but they don't want to talk about it because yeah. they know it's going to be a, just a huge controversy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the use of the phrase the right side of history, I use it to mean something completely different in my book specifically yeah. because of this. So people have been taking an old tweet of mine where I say that the right side of history may be the most morally idiotic phrase of modern times. Yeah. I was specifically referring to how Barack Obama uses it because the way that Barack Obama used it was, if you disagree with me, then you are on the wrong side of history, which is an insanely audacious claim because last I checked, you aren't God and you're not speaking from the future. So you didn't show up from 2000 years in the future and tell us that this worked out. You're just saying that you think that in the future, your views will be justified. Well, that's that's an emotional appeal, not really an argument. In my book, when I talk about the right side of history, what I'm saying is that there are certain things that we have found to be good in society. What exactly brought us to those good things? And those, what brought us there, that would be the right side of history. Like we can now look back. When you look at history, you have to look back. When Barack Obama talks about history, he's looking forward, which is very weird, right? It's like saying the future will have justified us 100 years from now. Well, that, I mean, that's a, that's a bizarre claim. And I think that that's the argument that, that Christians and Orthodox Jews and religious people can make is you may claim that, you know, you're on the right side of history, but how do you know that until we have seen how this has played all out? I mean, in the 1960s, there would have been an argument that the folks on the right side of history were people claiming that single motherhood was, was just as decent as two-parent family mm. households. And that fell apart pretty quickly. Yeah. So you're going to need to wait for history to justify you. Beyond that, when it comes to eternal moral principles, such as you can control your own behavior, this is a principle that has been justified over the course of Western civilization. And it's a principle that's under attack. So if you're talking about sexual behavior, sexual behavior is really just an extension of human behavior more generally, just in sort of the most passionate way. And the religious lesson has always been you are in control of your behavior. I mean, the lesson from Deuteronomy is you're supposed to, I give you here the choice between life and death and choose life, right? Mm -hmm. the, the choice is yours. And it's not as though, you know, if you're a believer like I am, when God wrote the Bible, that God didn't know human nature, that he didn't know that people have a tendency towards sin. Of course he knew that people have a tendency towards sin. I mean, that's that's been embedded in religious theology of every religion forever. The question is whether you are in control of yourself or whether you're not in control of yourself. And just because something is very difficult does not necessarily mean that you are justified in doing it. At the same time, you know, folks on the right, I think who have been pushed into discussing this issue ad nauseum, they need mm -hmm. to keep reminding folks on the left, and folks on the left don't understand this, that everyone is a sinner, everybody sins. Yeah. There are a great number of sins that, like, in, in my religion, we got 613 commandments, which means we are all sinning pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. and, and what that means is that I have to take all of those sins seriously, and in doing so, I'm not condemning you as a worse person than I am because you sin. I'm just saying I'm not going to change my standards of sin just because you feel a, a real drive to to do that. Yeah. Uh, and and at the same time, I've I've always held to the conviction when it comes to government, at least, that government has to have a secular rationale for taking any sort of political point of view. And so, for example, when it came to gay marriage, well, I am as a religious person very much against it, and I think traditional marriage is a way to go. And while I even think a public policy decision can be made in favoring traditional marriage over same-sex marriage because traditional marriage bears and rears children in a way same-sex marriage does not, I, I do think that since we have changed the definition of marriage to basically not care about children anymore, this is a natural byproduct 
of, of where we were already going with marriage. This is the natural consequence of a decision to redefine the nature of marriage back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, it is not a, a radical shift from the redefinition of marriage as just any two people who love each other and marriage is about love rather than marriage is about the commitment to the children that you're going to create together. So you wouldn't see this as just a continual uh, unraveling of the definition of marriage where where questions of exclusivity of two people and, and those sorts of things are next. Well, no, I, I do think that that's where we are going because yeah. I think that once you make the case that marriage is simply a committed love, yeah. then that could apply to anyone. I actually don't think that, that polygamous marriage will be next. I think that the next rules that will be on the table are probably incestuous marriages, simply mm. because even though they're rare and uncommon and people still feel a gut level disdain and, and back off of it, I, I think that there there's very little argument why if a brother and a brother want to get married, why that's any different on a, on a purely secular logical level than a brother and a non-brother getting married or a brother and a, yeah. and a non-sister getting married. Because again, what stops that is the religious conviction. Now you can backfill some sort of secular conviction on that, but usually the, the usual argument against incestuous marriage on a secular level is that it produces unhealthy children, for example. Well, that obviously is not the case if you are talking about, for example, a homosexual incestuous marriage. Now, again, I'm not comparing any of these things on a moral level. Right. I think there are gradations of sin. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna make that very clear for the folks at Media Matters. I am not comparing <laughs> incestuous marriage to same-sex yeah. marriage. I am saying that the the principled argument that any two people who love each other ought to be married, that love is love, or that any group of people who love each other ought to be able to be married, that does not have within it any consistent line of demarcation. Okay, well, I don't want to end on incestuous marriage, so <laughs> I will say this: uh, when, when you're you're Jewish, I'm Christian. Uh, we, we share a lot of things in common. Of course, uh, we have one huge part of our, our Bible in common. We also have a lot where we would disagree on the identity of, of Jesus Christ, for instance. What would you, as an outsider to the Christian church, what would you advise American Christians in terms of explaining their faith, uh, not just to, to people of other religious traditions, but to secular people? Uh, how, how would you advise us just in terms of communication to do that better? So I think a couple of things. One, faith provides meaning and purpose. It is not merely just, we believe this thing, so leave us alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the, the defensive move typically is, we believe a thing, we'll, we're leaving you alone, so why don't you leave us alone? And I think that the left then responds, many people on the left respond with, well, that's because you're a bigot, and now you're just making up a story to justify your bigotry. Mm-hmm. Instead, you have to make an affirmative and muscular case for your own faith and why your own faith has been good for the world and why it continues to be good for the world. The good news is that there's a really good case for that. It's called Western civilization. <laughs> and that, and all of the benefits that you enjoy as a secular person are reliant on a several thousand year history of religious and philosophical development that carries from Sinai and forward, yes, through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm saying that as a Jew, obviously, the extension of biblical principle came largely historically through Christianity, even if it began at Sinai. So, you know, mentioning that seems, I think, of relevance. And then beyond that, I think that it's important to be happy in your faith. It's something that is is very often difficult to do when you feel like you're under attack. Um, mm-hmm. But being being happy in your faith is is the best way to attract people to that faith. It's something that I've always admired about, for example, the Mormon community. Uh, I think that the Mormon community puts puts it forth a, a a very happy version of their faith. When you meet Mormons, they're they're generally very upbeat, mm-hmm. and they and they're taught to be upbeat. I think that's very attractive. I think religion has to stop being seen as some sort of limiting principle, and it has to start being seen as an opportunity not only to better yourself, but also to gain access to higher truths you wouldn't necessarily be able to gain access to mainly by 
reading the New York Times. Well, thank you, Ben Shapiro. Really grateful for your taking the time to have this conversation uh, with us and grateful for, for you and pray for you as you're in your frenetic pace uh, all over the country. So uh, take care of yourself. Hey, thanks. You too. This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts.